Well, today we are uh, continuing in our series in the book of Numbers, also known from its Hebrew title, In the Wilderness. And we're going to be looking again at a, an unusual sort of passage. We talked about a rather strange ritual last week. We're going to look at kind of a strange vow this week. So uh, as we have worked through this, um, we've kind of been building. I'd like for us to begin before we get to Numbers, as we have been by looking at a New Testament passage that sort of gives perspective and light to it. So I would ask you before we get to Numbers 6 to turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. So when you get to your New Testament, we see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Probably somewhere in the neighborhood of four-fifths through your Bible. When you get to Mark chapter chapter 8, we'll be reading verses 27 to 38. Hopefully as we read this, you should see that the statement made by Peter about Christ leads directly into what Jesus says next. Let's pick up with 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His Father's glory with the holy angels. Let us thank God for His Word. With that passage in mind, when we see Jesus clearly identified as Messiah, they finally come to a place where they get it. And when they now get it that He is the Messiah, He understands that they are not getting it, that He's going to have to suffer. So He becomes very clear in His teaching about it. Peter's not digging that. Lord, You're the Messiah. There's no way. That can't happen. And Jesus says, You're not thinking in 
God terms, you're thinking in human terms, and he rebukes him. And he explains the way of Christ, the way of the cross, the way of suffering. Now, the call that Jesus gives to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him is not exactly what you might call a great marketing strategy. This is not the the super recruitment that says, wow, I really want to get on board with this. Jesus is saying, come and suffer and die. We read earlier that everyone who gives up anything for him will receive much more from him. I don't have time to preach all these passages here, but understand that Jesus is calling all Christians to a life that sets aside the things that are natural, the things of the world, the things that everybody else seeks after, including even the good things of God, the good blessings that He gives us. He calls us to set aside the pursuit of those blessings for the pursuit of Him. Now with that in mind, let's go back to Numbers chapter 6. We'll look at the first 21 verses. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite. I like, by the way, just to, I don't want to interrupt the reading, but just to say I I prefer the wording in the older NIV and, and in other translations, a separation to the Lord. The idea is the same. A vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite. Verse 3, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as they remain under their Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. Throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. Even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonially unclean on account of them because the symbol of their dedication to God is on their head. Throughout the period of their dedication, they are, to conse- they are consecrated to the Lord. He goes on to give details, but that's the, the nutshell of this vow. Verse 9, if someone dies suddenly in the Nazarite's presence, thus defiling the hair that symbolizes their dedication, they must shave their head on the seventh day, the day of their cleansing. Then on the eighth day, they must bring two doves or two young pigeons to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The priest is to offer one as a sin offering and the other as as a burnt offering to make atonement for the Nazarite because they sinned by being in the presence of the dead body. 
That same day, they are to consecrate their head again. They must rededicate themselves to the Lord for the same period of dedication and must bring a year-old male lamb as a guilt offering. The previous days do not count because they became defiled during their period of dedication. Now this is the law of the Nazarite when the period of their dedication is over. They are to be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. They are to present their offerings to the Lord, a a year-old male lamb without defect for a burnt offering, a year-old ewe lamb without defect for a sin offering, a ram without defect for a fellowship offering, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings and a basket of bread made with the finest flour and without yeast, thick loaves with olive oil mixed in, and thin loaves brushed with olive oil. The priest is to present all these before the Lord and make the sin offering and the burnt offering. He is to present the basket of unleavened bread and is to sacrifice the ram as a fellowship offering to the Lord, together with its grain offering and drink offering. Then, at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the Nazarite must shave off the hair that symbolizes their dedication. They are to take the hair and put it in the fire that is under the sacrifice of the fellowship offering. After the Nazarite has shaved off the hair that symbolizes their dedication, the priest is to place in their hands a boiled shoulder of the ram and one thick loaf and one thin loaf from the basket, both made without yeast. The priest shall then wave these before the Lord as a wave offering. They are holy and belong to the priest, together with the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite, who vows offerings to the Lord in accordance with their dedication, in addition to whatever else they can afford. They must fulfill the vows they have made according to the law of the Nazarite. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Let's pray. Father, as we open Your Word today, we pray that You would open our eyes and our hearts that we might receive from You what You intend to communicate. Father, protect us from human opinion. Protect us from the enemy who would seek to deceive and distract and discourage us. Father, strip away from us the concerns of this world that weigh heavily on our minds and keep us from being able to focus. And Father, we pray that You would that you would mortify in us our flesh that seeks our own way and leans on our own understanding. Lord, we ask that you would speak now beyond your servant's faltering tongue, that your spirit might make clear to us what you reveal in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've been progressing here in chapters 1 and 2, we saw that God requires his people to order every aspect of their lives around him. That's a a basic principle for Israel. It's a basic principle for the church. It's not one that either Israel or the church has followed very well. In chapters 3 and 4, we saw that, that this idea naturally and necessarily extends to our worship and our service to God, as those who belong to the Lord must worship and serve Him on His terms. We don't approach God on our terms. We approach God on His terms. And last time, we considered the implications of those two realities on how we actually live day to day. 
recognizing that God's people are called to live holy lives, set apart for the Lord. Because the presence of God requires the absence of sin. This week, we deal with another rather unusual section dealing with the law of the Nazarite. And our core reality is this. It's before you. It should be on the screen as you're going through this. We want to get this into our minds because this is the the key for us to understand the passage. Drawing close to God requires separating from the things of the flesh. Drawing close to God requires separating from the things of the flesh. Now, as we're looking at this passage, i got to tell you, man, I struggled with this. Wrestled with how in the world do I preach from a Nazarite vow, which seems so absolutely foreign to us and doesn't appear to really connect to the gospel. How do we, how do we see Jesus in this Old Testament passage? And if Jesus himself said that, that all of the law and the prophets points to him, that Abraham and Moses and the prophets were speaking about him, then why is it so hard for me to see this? And I realize it's because I'm not that bright. It's good to have friends. And I needed God to open my eyes. Because when I look through my eyes, through eyes of flesh... I'm going to see the things of the flesh. My understanding is always going to come up short. We need to approach God's Word with that understanding. When you and I come to God's Word and and we expect it to say what we expect it to say, and that we should understand everything easily because it makes sense to our minds, then we're sitting in judgment of God's Word rather than letting God's Word sit in judgment of us. We need to recognize that this is the Lord Himself revealing through His written Word things that we are not going to be able to observe in the natural, general revelation that we see in creation. We can see lots of things about God in creation. We can recognize that there is a God. In fact, we have to talk ourselves into atheism. That's not natural for our souls. We have to convince ourselves because science points to God. I want to leave that hanging for you to think about, but that's the reality. All truth is God's truth, therefore all science points to God. The conclusions we make are often rooted in our own understanding. But as we look at this passage, as we understand what what he's saying here, we have to start by understanding what is it that God is saying to his people Israel back then. I can't just look at this and say, oh, well, how am I going to apply the Nazarite vow to my life? That's not the intent. Moses wasn't writing this. God wasn't wasn't saying, hey, Moses, let me just tell you, there's going to be these folks in Three Oaks in in, in 2022. And Moses is like, what's a Three Oaks? It doesn't even make any sense. What's 2022? What are you talking about, Lord? No, God says, Moses, here's what I want you to say to Israel. In this setting, the people that I just delivered a month ago out of, out of Egypt. We've been sitting here a year and a month ago. I've been sitting here giving the law at Mount Sinai, telling you all of these things about how the people of God are to live. 
And now, Moses, I'm going to, as you get ready to take off, to go march into this conquest, I want you to tell them this. Because the people of Israel, back then, at the foot of Mount Sinai, about to go into conquest in Canaan, not really, but they, they're supposed to. We'll get to that later. They need to know what I have to say. And in the midst of that, God, because He is God, who has bigger concepts than you and I can ever begin to fathom, amen? God is bigger than we are. His ways are higher than ours. His mind is infinite. In case you don't know, ours is limited. If you're not sure about that, then you know, go do some calculus and see, see how that's working for you. Some of you are like, oh, that's easy. Okay, great. There's always something that isn't easy. I find it's usually relationships, but that's another story. As we are working through this, we have to look at it in its context and understand what God is saying to Israel so that we can draw from it the eternal principles that God intends for all of His people for all time. And that's where we find ourselves today. As we're looking at this, understand that various vows are undertaken throughout the Bible. you go through the psalms you'll see many many references to the vows i have made to the lord the vows that i have fulfilled to the lord we see pictures of that throughout the prophets we see god judging the people for not keeping their vows for making vows and not fulfilling them there's a lot about vows in the bible there's a lot about fasting and those things go together the fasting and the vows these are special things that are done by the people of god but we aren't given a lot of details about most of them This is the only place that the law of the Nazarite is explained. It's here in number 6. Which is interesting because the book of Leviticus is that's just laying out the whole law. Deuteronomy is reminding them of the law. And yet here in Numbers, this is the only place that God gives this detail about the law of the Nazarite. We see it uh, at least three different places in the Scriptures. And in these three different places, more than that, but in these three different places where we see it as a lifetime vow, um, we have some pretty pretty big pictures that that you're going to understand, you'll recognize. And we see it specifically named with Samson in Judges 13 to 17. That's the, the problem with Samson is he's a great picture of violating pretty much every part of the vow. Right? So his, his life is a picture generally of failure. It's funny that he's always listed with the heroes of the Bible and they make action figures for little kids and all that kind of stuff. Because generally speaking, Samson is a great picture of the book of Judges, which is a book of failure. He has moments of success. He's the champion of Israel. Yep, that's great. But in the process of doing this ministry, if you will, of judging Israel, he turns against God over and over and over again. He pursues his own flesh, his own desires, rather than keeping the vow that was made for him at his birth. We also see it in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1 of the prophet Samuel. It's interesting, in both of these cases, these are uh, men born to previously barren mothers who were unable to have children, who sought the Lord, prayed to God, and God says, I'm going to give you this child and it's going to be set apart and places them under this Nazarite vow for life. 
Now, the third is not listed in the references in your program, but it should be. I should have listed Luke 1, verses 5 to 25, so I'd encourage you to write that down if you're taking notes. Luke 1, verses 5 to 25. Now, Luke does not use the word Nazarite here, but he seems to clearly have that in mind as he describes God's call for John the Baptist to be set apart from birth. As we see the life of John the Baptist unfold, he is a good picture of the Nazarite. In fact, Jesus makes it very clear in in the accusations that he talks about as people are, are accusing John and Jesus of various things. What they're accusing John of is, you know, being this this teetotaling uh, fuddy-duddy, right? He's a weird guy out in the wilderness. He looks funny. He's, he's, you know, not worried about his general appearance and hygiene. He's not worried about his reputation. He's separated himself from the normal things of society. And we're specifically told in, in the angel's message that he is not to ever have strong drink. So this is a a Nazarite vow that's not named but is described. There are numerous other places. We see it uh, uh, in the book of Amos uh, as the condemnation of God comes against those who convince Nazarites to drink alcohol, to break their vows. God condemns them for that. Amos stands against them. We see also that Paul seems to have taken part in the Nazarite vows of others in Acts 22, verses 20 to 26. There's a picture here as Paul arrives in Jerusalem again and and the people are stirred up against him, saying that he's teaching against the the Torah. And as uh, as Paul is dealing with all of the stuff uh, of people coming against him, uh, the leaders say, hey, here's what we want you to do. We want you to pay for the the sacrifices of these brothers who have taken this vow. And uh, as they come to fulfill their vows at the completion, as we just read, it doesn't say that it's a Nazarite vow, but it appears to be that. And they invite Paul to participate in that by funding the sacrifice, which was a fairly common thing under rabbinical practice. Now, Paul may or may not have taken this vow himself for a time, uh, according to Acts 18.18, 18, he shaves his hair off as the completion of a vow, which may have been a Nazarite vow, but since he's not near the temple to be able to make that sacrifice, eh, there's, some, there's some question about that. But we see the picture that even in the New Testament, even among believers, there's a continuation of vows of dedication, vows of separation. Apparently Nazarite vows, but for sure a variety of vows. We see Peter fasting. We see Jesus fasting. There's a lot of things there. Now, there's a, there's a wide variety of reasons why one might undertake a special vow or a fast like this. Some that we see listed in the Scriptures uh, are as part of an earnest prayer before the Lord. Lord, hear my prayer, and I, I make these vows. Lord, if you answer this prayer, then I will do this. And, and sometimes we get that, that conditional, I'm going to make a deal with God, I'm going to negotiate with God. That's not really the picture, although it can sound that way. The picture that we have is someone who is in their earnestness. I want to, con- I want to convince my own heart as I show God that I'm serious. I'm not playing. 
And so as I'm praying, I'm fasting. As I'm praying, I make a vow. I set myself apart. I separate myself from the things of the flesh so that I can draw nearer to God in this moment. So we see it as a part of earnest prayer before the Lord. We see it also in celebration of answered prayer. We see pictures of of those who have prayed, received an answer, and then they have a vow to thank the Lord, to celebrate this. We see it as part of a particular season of seeking to know God better and to hear from Him. We see it as an expression of special gratitude to Him, among other things. There could be any number of reasons. Interestingly, Moses does not here give reasons for such vows. So individual motivation in Israel and throughout history and today might vary widely. In any case, there are some key components that we don't want to miss. As we look at this Nazarite vow, the law of the Nazarite, Moses records several things right here in the initial description of this Nazarite vow expanding on the details as he goes. And if you take a look at verse 2, we'll see right out of the gate that the Nazarite vow is a special vow of separation to the Lord. The Nazarite vow is a special vow of separation to the Lord. Notice, the Lord says to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman wants to make a special vow a vow of dedication or separation to the Lord as a Nazarite. Then he goes on to tell them what they must do. So notice these three things. There are more, but notice at least these three things about the nature of this vow. First, it is voluntary. It is voluntary. The Nazarite vow is a special vow of separation to the Lord, and it is voluntary. If someone wants to make this vow, notice there's a want to. They're not required to. Nobody else is saying, hey, you know, you have to, you have to make this vow. The, the rare exception is the parent making the vow for the child, as we've already discussed. But it's a voluntary vow. The vow doesn't have to be made. But once made, it has to be kept. We see at the end of the passage in verse 21 that they must fulfill the vows they have made according to the law of the Nazarite. It doesn't have to be made, but it must be kept. It's not a vow for citizenship in Israel. You don't have to take this vow as part of your entrance ceremony. It's not a a, a vow that's made to qualify for an office. If you want to be a priest, you take this vow. If you want to be in this job or that job, you take this vow. It's not that. Rather, it's a unique setting oneself apart for devotion to the Lord. For a particular kind of drawing near to Him. It's voluntary. Notice second, it is special. If anyone wants to make a special vow, right, you're going to make this special vow as a Nazarite. All of God's people were to be holy. We've looked at that already. God is holy, so His people are to be holy. We're set apart uh, for Him. We're set apart from the rest of the world. Israel was called out of the nations, separated from the peoples that they should belong to God. So all of God's people were to be holy. They were to be set apart, separated unto Him. But this vow was special. We see a picture here and throughout God's Word of special vows, special fasts, special ceremonies used at special occasions 
to bring a special focus or a special close fellowship with the Lord. Not just in the Old Testament. I mentioned earlier, the New Testament has many similar examples. No one was more fully and completely devoted to God than Jesus Himself. Yet we see Him undergo the the ceremony of baptism, this special ceremony. And it wasn't that He needed to repent, but He underwent this special ceremony. We see Him celebrate the special ritual ceremony of the Passover. We see Him fast in the wilderness. We see Him uh, seek out special alone time with the Father, even having a special prayer time in the garden as He prepared to lay down His life for us. So we see that the Nazarite vow is a special vow. Third, notice, and this is really important for us to grasp, it's open to all. It's open to all. It's voluntary. It's special. And it's also open to everyone. If a man or a woman, without any restrictions here, wants to do this, here's what they're to do. Now the priesthood, as we've already looked at, was restricted very specifically to those from Aaron's line who were set apart apart by God. Only the Levites were allowed to do the, the work, the holy work in the tabernacle as they were set apart by God for this. It was very restrictive. And even among the Levites, only those males between 30 and 50 were allowed to do the work. So you had a a, a minimum age and then you had a, a maximum, a forced retirement age, if you will. It was restricted. But this voluntary, special vow was available to anyone, regardless of tribe, age, or gender. Okay, so it's voluntary, it's special, and it's open to all. Let's walk through this passage real quickly as quickly as I'm able to do that. And you know I'm not quick, so we'll just ride with me. Okay, so as they're going through this, we see the description in the first handful of verses there. It's a special vow. If they want to do this, notice verse 3, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink. Okay, so it's not just wine. I saw some commentaries that said, well, it was only wine. They were able to drink other drink. Uh, Those were specifically Jewish rabbinical commentaries, not Christian commentaries. I don't know what the difference is. I'm just saying, I mean, I know what the difference is. I don't know why there's a difference in what they say about it. Because it's pretty clear, right? Wine or similar drink in one translation, fermented drink here, strong drink uh, in a number of things. So alcohol in general, stay away. That's, That's part of the vow. But it's not just that. Interestingly, he doesn't just say stay away from these intoxicating drinks as a beverage, as the old Baptist covenant used to say. What it it says here is stay away from those and anything that's a grape product. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) So you're telling me I'm not to have any grape juice at all? So my, my communion juice, that's not okay? No, it's not okay. But what about my raisinets? Because I really dig my raisinets when I go to the movies. Nope. None of that. Because it's part of the fruit of the vine. It's part of the grape. Why? You see, grapes were, were associated with blessing, joy, prosperity, merriment. And they were setting this aside for the time. While they're under this vow, to symbolically say, I'm separating myself from these blessings of God's providence on the earth. 
So they set apart themselves away from this. Don't, don't have anything to do with grapes. As long as they remain under the, Na- the Nazarite vow, this is verse uh, 4, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. So it's not about intoxication. It's about separating yourself from this earthly blessing. Intoxication was already a bad thing. There's no place among the people of God for intoxication. And it's, we see that picture over and over and over again. What he's saying here very clearly, it's not about that for this vow. It's about this whole grape family. Stay away from it. Then he goes on. This is verse 5. During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. As I was trying to figure out this whole vow thing, I came across a a Hebrew scholar who pointed out that the, the phrasing here, the picture of it, is that of an unkept vineyard. So that it's not just... That, that God wants them to have their hair longer. It's that the idea here is an unkempt sort of thing. So it's not just not cutting your hair. It is that. But it's setting yourself apart with this visible symbol that makes you look different than those around you. You are specifically not fitting in with the culture so the picture we have of John the Baptist, and if you've seen any, any Jesus kind of movies, you, you always see this picture of John the Baptist, his hair's kind of wild, and he looks a little crazy, his beard's all kind of growing out, and he's dressed in camel hair, and, and just, you kind of picture him as probably having a little B.O., you know, just kind of a, you know, the guy's just weird. This is a call to be weird. During the time of this vow, I set aside looking good. I set aside fitting in. I set aside my reputation as a symbol that I am set apart for God. So during this time, I am taking on shame. I'm setting aside my reputation because the only thing that matters is to separate from the things of the flesh that I might draw near to God. So when we look at Samson, by the way, just a little thing about the hair, in case you thought it was something magic, as they often portray it in in these movies, his his power was in his hair. No, his power was from God. His power was God set him apart. And as he was breaking these vows, the cutting of his hair was the final step. It was the final, consummate rejection of, of his position of being near to God. He disdained, he disregarded, he disrespected what God had set him apart for. Very much the way Esau despised his birthright by neglecting to care about it more than he cared about a bowl of soup. These are great sins. They seem small, perhaps, to us. Really, God judged him because he got a haircut? God judged him. Because he went his way instead of God's way. Period. So here as we continue, we notice this next part, verse 6. 
Throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. Okay, now that's not surprising because the dead body is unclean. And we've seen already uh, earlier in this passage that anyone who comes in contact with the dead body is to be removed from the camp. They're to be outside the camp. All that is, out, uh, that is unclean has to be removed from the community, removed from the presence of God. But there's more. You see, the, the priesthood and the Levites could not touch a dead body. They could not be associated with that while they were doing their work. But they could separate from that work to deal with their parents' funerals. Someone that's closely related to them, they could go and deal with the things that need to be dealt with. But notice what he says here. Throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. Verse 7 even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonially unclean on account of them. Because the symbol of their dedication to God is on their head. Throughout the period of their dedication, they are consecrated to the Lord. In other words, this isn't just about a dead body. Yes, that. But it's more. It is renouncing my primary commitment to my family because I'm set apart to God. This is my primary commitment. Nothing else matters during the time of this vow. And to put family first, yes, you heard me right, to put family first becomes a sin. The family then becomes an idol because I've let my family these earthly bonds become... Don't know what just happened. Hi. Because I've let my earthly bonds become more important to me than God and keeping my vows to Him. Okay, so these are, these are pretty big things, Right? Notice that, that there's a provision here for if someone dies suddenly in the Nazarite's presence. Uh, this is uh, looking at verse 9. If someone dies suddenly in the Nazarite's presence, thus defiling the hair that symbolizes their dedication, notice that how important the hair is as a symbol. It's not that hair is sinful or, or, or anything like that. It's that it's the symbol of your dedication. And when they defile you, the hair symbolizes that. So if someone dies suddenly, however that works, you're walking along with your, with your friend, they have a heart attack, okay, now I'm defiled in the presence of this. Let your mind take in what that might mean. I'm sitting with my father, my wife, my child, and they die. This is, according to what we're reading here, now it becomes sinful and I have to make atonement for that with a sacrifice as we talked about last time there are sinful things that defile us that we don't choose there's willful sin for sure when I consciously break this vow that's a willful sin but there are times that things happen to me that defile me and I have to deal with that too. Seems harsh. 
the picture here is very clear. No matter what happens, no matter what your personal emotional state, Him first. We trust God. We focus on God. We rely on His provision to make it right. That's a hard thing. Which is one of the reasons that it's so important that this is a voluntary and special vow. When you take this action, when you choose to set yourself apart for Him, you need to count the cost. You need to understand what you're getting into. It reminds me of what Jesus said to to those who would follow Him. If you're going to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, you need to count the cost because there is a cost. It's not cheap grace as we've seen so often. It's free in that there's nothing I can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing I can do to earn God's grace. The price for my sin was paid in the final perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross. There is nothing left to pay. God has no wrath remaining for the believer in Jesus Christ. Because the wrath has already fallen on Jesus. For those outside of Christ, we remain under the wrath of God, condemned by our nature. But those who receive Christ by faith are united to Him. And we have credited to our account the righteousness of Christ. In all of these things, we have to recognize that none of it hinges on what we think. I don't get to make the rules. You don't get to make the rules. We don't get to define sin according to how we feel. We look at what God says and we take Him at His word. Period. It's the only option given. As we continue on looking at this Nazarite vow, there's a, a provision made for how we deal with this sin. For when, when I do wrong, whether by choice or by accident, and I, I need to uh, start over again. So I, then I shave the head, and I restart the vow, and I go back through this thing, and I make the sacrifice, and we see the, the ceremony that is prescribed specifically and in great detail involving the priest and the sacrifices. And so not only... Is there a sacrifice involved if I mess up and I need to get this right? But there is a sacrifice involved at the conclusion of the vow. So when I bring this to a close, I have to come to the priest at the tabernacle and bring this multifaceted sacrifice. The sin offering, the guilt offering, the fellowship offering, the grain offering, the wave offering. I bring all this stuff. So it's expensive. There is a great cost even if I don't have, have the funeral perspective I, I, I mentioned earlier, there is a great cost in a very literal sense because I have to make all these sacrifices at the conclusion of the vow. And notice that he also adds in there, and whatever else you can afford. When you make this vow, it's voluntary, it's special, it's open to all, but it is also regulated by God's law. We come to God on His terms, not on our own. I don't get to set myself apart as I want to. I set myself apart voluntarily for God, but only on His 
terms. I don't get to say, well, I'm going I'm to you know, skip church so that I can serve God in some other way. That was a big movement a, a couple of years back. That we're going to forsake gathering together for worship so we can go do service. You know what? There's a whole lot of days in the week. You can do service a lot of the time. But we're called to be together in worship. I don't get to decide for myself what that looks like. I don't get to decide, you know what, we're not going to have the preaching of the word this morning, we're just going to have a singing service, just a music service. Now I'm all for a hymn sing, a great, great musical service, but that's not what the church gathering is for. It centers on the word of God, not the preacher, but the word being preached. We can't get away from that just because it's not cool anymore. There's a lot going on in our world turning church into entertainment. Now, I'm not in any way opposed to making truth relevant in the way we present it. But when we think we've got to cook it up and add some special sauce to it, then we've missed the perspective that this is God's Word. And it's not about us. When we sow seeds to the flesh, we will reap from the flesh. We have to recognize that not in others, but in ourselves. And be convicted regularly. Okay. Way over time, let me, uh, let me jump through this. Okay, so we see the, the basic elements here. Now, contrary to the confusing teaching of some folks, the gospel accounts make it quite clear that Jesus was not a Nazarite. Even by his own contrast of the accusations about his ministry and that of John the Baptist, when they accused Jesus of being a wine-bibber, a drunk, and a glutton, Jesus was partaking in things that a Nazarite would not, could not partake in. He went into the home of dead people, right? He, he did these things that a Nazarite would not, could not do. So he wasn't a Nazarite, but he was from before he was born set apart for God's purposes. Jesus did lead a life that was utterly set apart to God, and he called his followers to that same set-apart life. Brings me to our memory verse for today. Our memory verse is Matthew 16, 24. Okay, so you've got that up on the screen. You should uh, be able to find it in your program, Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Okay, because this is our memory verse and because it's so central to what we're talking about, it, let, let's read it together so that it's in your mind and in your mouth. Here we go, Matthew 18, or 16, 24. <laughs> then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We're not called to take a Nazarite vow or to make a, a sacrifice or look a certain way or uh, have a... a you know, have some big ritual in order to have a relationship with God. The gospel is clear that we're not in any way saved by good works or religious deeds done in the flesh, but by believing in Jesus as the one sent by the Father to make full payment for all of our sins and to give us eternal life. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works. However, repentance is part and parcel of that believing. We must turn our backs on who we were in our natural sinful selves. And we must live as the brand new reborn people we are in Christ. 
Holiness is part of being God's people. We are to be separated from the world and separated unto the Lord as His. This means denying ourselves and embracing the shame and suffering of the cross, living as aliens and strangers in this world. And so to that end, we find these realities from the Nazarite vow that we see in number 6. The Nazarite vow foreshadows the call of the Christian to set aside the blessings of this world. The Nazarite vow foreshadows the call of the Christian to set aside the blessings of this world. The fruit of the vine is a symbol of joy, merriment, festivity, and prosperity. And as the Nazarite lays aside anything connected to grapes, the Christian lets go of the cry for God's blessings in this life and follows Christ's example of suffering for the gospel. Now don't hear me saying that means we should all walk around in sackcloth and ashes with the face of the mourner and and try to take a vow of poverty like the mendicant monks. Many have said that over the years and thought that. That's not what we see. In fact, there's nothing monastic about the Nazarite vow. They still live among the people. They still do everyday regular things, but they follow these prescribed things from God for a vow of separation. In other words, they're in the world, but they're not of the world. Very much like we as Christians don't belong to this world, but we still remain here. So it doesn't mean that we don't enjoy life and embrace with thanksgiving the many blessings the Lord gives us. It simply means, <coughs> excuse me, it simply means that we voluntarily and actively separate ourselves from the need and defining pursuit of these things. We're called, in view of God's mercy, to make our lives a living sacrifice to Him. This temporal, earthly plane is not meant to be our best life in which we find consummate peace and blessing. Disciples of Christ focus on the reality that the best is yet to come when we will be with the Lord face to face. So the Nazarite vow foreshadows the call of the Christian to set aside the blessings of this world. It also foreshadows the call of the Christian to set aside the bonds of this world. To set aside the bonds of this world. Just as any of God's good gifts to us can become stumbling blocks and idols if we let them become our goals, so can God's good gift of family and meaningful relationships. The disciple of Christ must have no allegiances, not husband or wife, not child, not parent, not whatever your tribe is. The disciple of Christ must have no allegiances that rival our love for Christ. That does not mean that we reject our family. It does not mean that patriotism is a sin or belonging, being proud of your ethnic background is a sin. It doesn't mean that cheering for a sports team is a sin unless it's the Packers. But... What it does mean is that I'm no longer primarily tied to any of those things. You want to be a part of a political party? Fine. But it cannot trump your... Okay, that was an accidental... I'm very sorry that... I was using that long before the dude was in politics, right? It cannot take the place of or overcome your 
primary allegiance to God and obedience to Him. That must be bigger. Period. That's it. Nothing else. Vote your conscience and let your conscience be informed by the Scriptures. But if you're going to... Okay, i got to stop. I'm going to get a little out of control. If you're going to define yourself by the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or any other party, period then you make that thing an idol and you reject God. I don't care what the party is. Amen. We belong to Him. And therefore, we set aside the bonds of this world. I love my wife. She can never be, become more important to me than Christ. I love my children they can never become more important to me than Christ. We are called, <clears throat> excuse me, to set all of these things aside. The disciple of Christ must have no allegiances that rival our love for Christ. Jesus said that anyone who loves family or friends more than him is not worthy of him. The Nazarite vow foreshadows the call of the Christian to set aside the bonds of this world. Notice also, that it foreshadows the, the call of the Christian to set aside the glory of this world. To set aside the glory of this world. Mark 8.38 says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory. Matthew 10.33 says, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. It's natural for us to cling to our reputation. But those who are set apart for Christ relinquish our pride. We let go of our reputation. We let go of whatever glory we might receive in this world. Disciples of Christ embrace the scorn and shame of this world for glory in the next. Just as Jesus did. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We spend a lot of time in our world building a reputation, building an image. Social media has not lessened that. It's thrown fuel on the fire. We've got to look a certain way. We've got to fit the fashion it's more than just how we look. It's more than not taking a razor to our head. It's being set apart so that there is no earthly glory that in our mind rivals the reality of belonging to Christ. As Paul said in Romans 8.18, the suffering or shame or embarrassment we endure now isn't even worth comparing to what God has in store for us. So as we wrap this up for today, consider what denying yourself to take up your cross and follow Jesus means in your daily life. If you've been a part of the Wednesday or Friday Bible studies, we've been looking at that very thing. What does it mean in the old hymn where we say, Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. What does that mean? All to Jesus I surrender. 
I'll go with him, with him all the way. What does that mean in your daily life? Because it's one thing to sing about it. It's one thing to say, Lord, burn away everything that breaks your heart. I'm yours. Everything I have, everything I've got. It's one thing to sing that when we're sitting together on a Sunday morning. What's that look like on a Tuesday afternoon for you? What does that look like when you're mistreated at work? What does it look like when somebody cuts you off in traffic or stops right in front of you when you're driving, which never happens in Three Oaks? What does it look like for you when it looks like, it appears, it feels like God is absent? What does it mean in your life to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus? What things of the flesh, of this world, do you need to separate from in order to be separated unto the Lord? As one who was dead in your sins, but has been brought to life through faith in Christ. As one who deserves to be in hell right now, but has been united to Christ through faith and given eternal life and glory as God's own child. It only makes sense to offer your life, your very being, as a living sacrifice to Him. Knowing all that He's done for us, it only makes sense to live for Him. To say, I'm yours, Lord, and mean it. To set my heart on Him, letting go of everything else. So set aside your claim to the good life here and now. Set aside your claim to earthly blessings, earthly bonds, and earthly glory. Set aside your quest for whatever you're chasing that isn't Christ Himself, including God's good gifts to you. When we chase His, His gifts, His hand instead of His face, we make these things idols. Set aside your quest for prosperity or peace or healing or comfort in this life for the sake of knowing Him more fully by walking in His steps. Draw near to God by separating yourself from the things of the flesh. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Father, as we have studied your word, we need your spirit to make it live to us. So now in this moment, Father, take the words of your book beyond just our our head to our heart that we might do more than just know them we would love them and embrace them that we would not see denying ourselves as some great sacrifice but rather as a joy as we draw near to you help us to do this as we walk together as a family as your body and bride in a household of faith. Father, cause us to be broken for those who are broken and to rejoice with those who rejoice that we might stand together strengthening one another, keeping our vows to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.